Hello, Edgar. Hello, Gregoire. Hi there. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. Thanks. What about you? I'm doing fine. Thank you. Great. We are here to listen to the second part of the interview we recorded with Catherine Silver. The audience may remember Catherine Silver is senior member, training analyst, and supervisor at the National Psychological Association for Psychoanalysis in New York City. Also known as NPAP. And she is one of my two supervisors. Mm -hmm. And she has a strong background in sociology. Correct. So if you have any questions, comments, let us know. You can write to us directly through discussions on psychoanalysis at pm.me or contact us on our forum on Facebook. So let's see and let's hear what Catherine has to share with us today. This is Edgar Francisco Danielson. This is Grégoire Pierre. Welcome to Discussions on Psychoanalysis. over the years of clinical practice, what have been the major obstacles that you have encountered as a psychoanalyst? Well, I don't know if obstacle is the right word. I encountered some uh, situations which were difficult, both in the organization and among my patients. In the organization, there is sometimes a feeling of disorganization and you don't quite know what's going on or who is in charge. And that makes it difficult to connect with people within the organization. Mm -hmm. Regarding my patient, there have been crises, whether suicidal crisis, crisis of emergencies, Uh, which are difficult unless you are part of a linkage of psychiatrists or hospital that can help you. When you say organization, you're referring to psychoanalytic institutes, the psychoanalytic institute where you come from or you're trained? I am referring to my psychoanalytic institute, mm -hmm. saying that it's a small institute. So in principle, it should not be that bureaucratized, but it is. Mm -hmm. And somehow I often don't like the kind of distinction that they make which are very artificial distinction between members and non-members, mm -hmm. which create, I think, blockages to exchange of ideas. Yeah, I imagine that what you're referring to is this artificial distinction between someone who is in training to become an analyst, what we usually call the candidates, right? and those who have completed the training and now become members of the Institute. As we have said that, we are trained to become members, so we stay within the same organization and somehow we don't manage to organize ourselves very well. But there is also an elite that is within the organization, there is a small group of people that work closely together and it may be good for them, but often it has a secrecy type of a system whereby their decisions and the way they operate is not transparent to members. Yes. That is a problem. Also, there is limited inducement to become involved in the organization for the members. And perhaps I'm guilty of that because I never really accepted administrative position, which did not interest me, but they would have interested me if they'd been, you know, organized around content of issues that I think are important. Mm-hmm. 
And what would be those issues? Uh, issues of whether we should link up with other organizations, whether we should try to have more clinical seminars, issues of whether we should uh, try to do some research, issues of how to integrate people better. Those issues might have brought me in, but things that were so kind of uh, petty did not interest me. How do you understand that your organization and maybe others were not interested in creating this linkage that you're referring to? Well, there are two types of linkage. There is a linkage within the members, where there is a kind of exclusive club among certain people. And then there is a cleavage between the non-members and the members. And I think that basically both are going on and they are related. We think that psychoanalysts are different from other organizations. They are not. People want power. People want the ability to decide. People want to be exclusive. It's the same dynamic. So psychoanalysts that should be able to understand how the mind works, how people relate to each other, how people need each other, they don't seem to apply it to the organization. It becomes some kind of specific space where the rules that we look at for our patients is, don't apply? They have a conception of an organization that is very traditional. And basically, you are partly correct that what we try to understand at the individual level, we don't understand it at the group level. And one of my uh, questions is, why is it that we don't have classes on group therapy? Because we're all members of groups. We all should be able to decide how to relate to others in a group. And nobody, in a sense, has taken the, the initiative to put it forward. Would you say that this could be construed as a resistance, meaning there is an unconscious wish to remain isolated as a way to gain power, to feel different, special? I think it's giving them too much credit. I think it's ignorance. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> that is certainly giving them a little less credit. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. You know, the division between members and non-members or people who have completed the training and people who are training seems to be grounded in kind of a patriarchal system where the father is the one who decides and the followers, you know, at some point will have to kill the father. I wonder if that's the only way that we have to move forward. Well, father, mother, I don't know. That's right, that's right. There are some pretty angry mothers also. Yes. <laughs> We've been talking about the resistances maybe within some institutes. How do you understand the resistances in general in the American psychoanalysis field. I don't hear many institutes actually advertising for a different kind of approach than the one you are criticizing now. So how could we understand that it's spread? Well, um, first, I'm not sure how you use resistance here, but I have to say that I have some friends and colleagues who went to smaller institutes and they start with a group of 10 you know, people entering at the same time and they create very strong bond between them and they are much closer to the faculty and to the members. And they seem to create a community, which is an intellectual community, something that I don't think we have. It's much less bureaucratized. There are many, a few committees There are more, you know, intense interaction between members and non-members in terms of presenting cases. So the climate, the cultural climate and the intellectual climate is very different. But these are small, very small kind of institutes. Does that mean that you don't see that in America a difficulty to use the social 
in psychoanalysis? Oh, no, no, that's different. I was talking about the structure of the organization. And I was saying that in some organization, we don't have the same problems. So it's not something that you find across the board. There are pluses and minuses. If you talk about whether the social is an issue across the board, again, it, there is some variation. But certainly Europe is more open to looking at the social than American are. Yes. And so how do you understand that difference between Europe and the United States in that sense? Well, there are many theories on that. I mean, the one that is the most frequent one is that this is a Protestant country where the individual is king. So as an individual, you make your own decision. You don't need to get close to communities. You don't need to get close to other members. You fight on your own and you have God, you know, you talk directly to God. There is no intermediary. So many people like Max Weber studied how this society is based on Christian ideologies. Now, there are many groups which are not Christian, of course. Uh, many of the minorities, Jews, where the, the philosophy is very different, totally different. But among Protestants, you have that tendency, and it's a Protestant country. Mm -hmm. You were mentioning at some point that you gave us some details about your training. For example, you were asked to, I think you went into a hospital or you were doing observation. I was working with youngsters for about a year and a half, but it's because I came in with a non-clinical background. It was pre-training. Now, once you entered the training and now that you had years as a psychoanalyst, Have you seen any changes in the way candidates are trained nowadays compared to your time? I think there are changes. I think it's more flexible. I think there are more choices. I think that the number of courses has increased. I think they are including gender, sexuality, much more so. They are, you know, interested in choices. I think that it's much more open than when I was in training. So at your time, it was a very, it was a rigid curriculum? I did it in four years at that point. You could do it very quickly. Mm -hmm. But you had to take a lot of courses and it was too quick in some ways. They just expected you to ingurgitate so much stuff. But many people thought it was also more practical. In four years, you could be done and go on. Mm -hmm. But I thought it was too fast. That's an interesting point because nowadays there are some institutes that market themselves as offering the opportunity for candidates to finish in four years. So it's becoming something that can be offered marketed and somehow we become part of a system of who can give me more for my money. Any thoughts about that? I mean, I don't think it's only a question of money. I think that some people want to get certified quickly mm -hmm. and they want to have their own life, especially because pe most people that go to institute go there in mid-career. They already have a career. Yes. They are for some reason trying to start a second career So they are not like 20 years old. They are usually in the mid-30s. Mm -hmm. So for them to be able to finish in four years is doable because they come with experience. They come with having gone to college. They come with having worked already. So I think it's more a question of time than a question of simple money. The other thing that comes to mind is that I've heard this from other psychoanalysts, and I've been told that it's better to have a slow training because it allows the candidate to integrate slowly what's happening in courses, the work with the patients and supervision. Do you have any take on that? Yeah, I think that it could work for some people, mm -hmm. but I don't think that it's necessarily the best solution. Mm -hmm. 
You could argue the money question is the longer you spend there, the more money you spend on the institute, the better for the institute, the more you are going to look at uh, supervisors and you are, the, more, the longer you are going to be in touch with them. Some people see that it's really a question of money. I don't think so. I don't think it's just money. But I would not give it as a general rule, the fact that longer is better or shorter is better. I think that people who come mature, who had an experience in the past, who had worked in organization, who are come with a certain amount of training in any field can finish in four years. Now, it assumes that once you are finished, you continue doing research, you continue reading, you continue being involved in groups, and you continue being part of the community. You don't cut yourself off. Mm-hmm. What you're saying reminds me that some people say that to be a psychoanalyst is a lonesome experience. We practice alone. Unless we specifically and intentionally create community, we become very isolated. That's true. Do you have any pointers in terms of how do we enlarge the tent, so to speak? How do we create sense of community? How have you done that in your career? What do you tell your supervisees or people you teach in institutes? Well, again, there is not one simple answer. I have been member of groups, clinical groups, groups with discussion groups, both at the university and created by myself and some other friends. And we present cases to each other and we you know, listen to each other and we respond to each other. This works very well. I've been a member of other groups uh, organized by uh, members of NPAP, senior members that you know have their seminars and you can uh, mm-hmm. join. I, I joined the seminar for like 12 years. I joined another seminar for four years. So I've always been part of groups, which is fine. I mean, it works well. But whether everybody should do that, I think they should try. Some people feel that their time is so tight that they don't have the flexibility to take off more time to go and get, you know, involved in other groups, which may be the case. Or they feel that they don't want it. Because you're right, we are very alone. And it's good to interact and it's good to share. But I can see some people, and I won't blame them, they don't want to do it. Mm -hmm. Since you started your private practice, were there changes in the type of patients you worked with, uh, theoretical approaches and techniques that you used? I started by being a good girl, and I became a bad girl. Meaning? Tell us about (laughs) that. Yeah. I became a good girl by the sense that I was, you know, following all of the prescriptions that you are taught in courses about defenses, transference, identification, all of the methods that you use, distance, neutrality. And with the year, I changed because I learned more. I integrated many more different theories. And I became convinced that to be a good analyst, you don't need to follow any prescription. You have to be able to deeply feel and share and understand the other person with whom you're working. Mm. So I became much less kind of constrained by theories, and I'm much more willing to experiment in ways that people may feel is going beyond the borders of the field. So do you feel like you had a change in the type of patients that you worked with? You know, my patients are always a mix. I, By chance, I tried to attract people who were writers, musicians, painters, poets, very creative people, dancers, that's the people I have attracted. Now, why? I'm not quite sure. And then I attracted some academics, but very few. 
And then I attracted some very low income people who came with their insurance. And that was fascinating. So my practice has now shrunk because I don't want to be overwhelmed by cases. So I decided to stay with a small group of patients. And they have changed a little bit by, in a sense, being broader in terms of the type of people who came to me. First, they were mostly middle class, upper middle class people. And then they became more kind of lower middle class and even working class. And I had some veterans from wars. So I had a mix. Do you think your location has something to do with it, maybe? Yeah, 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 no, certainly. But my location has a double-edged location because I lost patients who said, you live in Harlem, I will never go to Harlem. Because Columbia University is in Harlem. Is it? I mean, yeah, 110th Street is a divide. So they feel that it is in Harlem. So people who have never gone to the Upper West Side may feel a little bit threatened. And there are many cases who said, you know, we'd love to come, but it's not a neighborhood that I would be. It's not safe. Safe, exactly. <laughs> Near Colombia. <laughs> exactly. I want to touch again on the idea of the good girl, bad girl. <laughs> in particular, one of the pillars of the psychoanalytic training is supervision. I imagine that you have supervised many candidates. How do you balance the good girl, bad girl in supervision? Well, that's an easy one because in supervision, you are dealing with equals. I treat them as equals. So there's no way that I can make a bad mistake because they will not feel threatened. Mm -hmm. They will have their own point of view. I have my own point of view. We will exchange ideas and feelings. So with the supervisee, it's the easiest. With patients, I have to watch. Sometimes I'm too open. Sometimes I intervene too quickly. Sometimes I make suggestions that would be frowned upon. So there's a difference. Some candidates uh, experience a uh, power struggle with their supervisors. Well, that's right. Yeah, I heard about that. But for me, why should I want a power struggle? It has to do with exchange and learning from each other. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, people who have thought of their own experience and can give you something. Mm -hmm. Do you think that how people perceived you influenced that? both the way you were able to be with your supervisors and with your patients? Again, there's a difference between supervisors and patients. With my patients, they might have thought that I'm too liberal and I was criticized by being too much of a feminist. So yes, I got criticism on those two levels. Do you think that your patients felt that allowed to criticize you as too feminist because you were a woman? No, because of the way I talked. I would, you know, raise issues, uh, inequality, I would raise the issue of gender disparity. I would raise the issue of discrimination. And I would use it from a sociological point of view by showing them that there is data. It's not just in our head that there is discrimination. So they thought that perhaps I was too realistic in terms of bringing in the outside world in the consulting room. Mm -hmm. And thus being too feminist. Do you feel like how those people responded to you, whether it's your patients or your supervisee, did that influence your connection to psychoanalysis, to the way you used it, you perceived it? Well, I'm not quite sure. I have to think about the question, how it changed me or how it changed the way I use psychoanalysis. Yeah, I could rephrase a little bit. I often wonder how the way we are perceived in general, but so in this case, we're talking about psychoanalysis, will influence the way we perceive the, what is around us. Yeah. 
And I wonder often how people's experience of themselves and people's experience of what it means to be themselves or how they are perceived by others will influence the way they connect. Uh, when I'm talking about psychoanalysts, they connect to psychoanalysis. Some people will probably be more interested in some kind of psychoanalysis because they were treated in a certain way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe I'm wrong, but so I'm wondering if for you, who's uh, very tuned to the question of the social and the external environment, if you felt that maybe the way you were perceived, sometimes in a good way, sometimes in a bad way, helped you connect to psychoanalysis in a different way and maybe shift the way you connected to psychoanalysis throughout your career. I think that issues of, for example, social class come up And they're very important because psychoanalysts do not deal with issue of class. Often, you know, they perceive you as coming from a certain class, the way you live, the way you dress, the way you talk. And this perception is important because it creates some kind of stereotypical ideas to what to expect from the therapist. So this is being brought up in my analysis with patient and supervisee to discuss what does it mean for you to be working with me. The same thing with religion, the same thing with gender. All of these things come up. What does it mean? And it usually brings out very important issues that bring a different level of understanding of themselves and of our relationship. But one thing I want to add is that many patients like me want to be good patients, not bad patients. Why? They want to please you. Mm-hmm. So they want, in a sense, to behave in a way that will be consistent with what they think you want. And that has to be analyzed also. Did you change your approach on that question since you started working? Well, my reaction have always been open-ended, that there are good issues. They should be looked at, they should be discussed, and they should be understood. And once they have been raised, usually they disappear. In fact, if anything, they're no longer a source of resistance. Because as you mentioned last time, you asked me if the social could be a source of resistance, and it can if it's not analyzed properly and it's just used to put a barrier between the therapist and the patient, yes. Just around the physicality of your practice, you've been seeing uh, some kind of patients uh, mostly. Do you think that you could have practiced psychoanalysis the same way somewhere else, or you feel like your practice is really influenced by the fact that you practice in New York City? It's a hard question to answer because I didn't practice anywhere else, so I have nowhere to compare it. In New York, it's a different population, different culture, different expectations. So I think that I would possibly be different if I were practicing in Texas or in uh, Mississippi. Yes, I may be different because the population is different, because the needs are different, because the vision is different. New York is a very unique case in many ways. I see we're talking about the different layers of reality, class, race, gender, so on. And all of that is in the room. Right. Sometimes explicit. Right. Sometimes it is unconscious. And sometimes they become resistance. Right. In my associations now, I go to this term of what we call neutrality in psychoanalysis. Quotation mark. Yes, exactly. So we, from that position of Anna Freud's position that we have to be equidistant from ego, superego, and it, and then neutrality has been reformulated again and again and again throughout the years, the decades. What's your position with regards to neutrality. What is neutrality for you in the psychoanalytic world? I think historically, I understand why neutrality was seen as an important dimension, because it's so easy to be ideological. 
Psychoanalysts at the beginning came with their own position mm-hmm. about the superego, about the ego, about the relationship between your structure, and they would just push their own ideological agenda. The concern was neutrality in principle should alert people not to push their own ideological views. So that makes sense. What they did not, I think, realize is that neutrality is something that we don't control. In other words, we may want to be neutral, but we are not. Mm-hmm. Because we come with a certain class, a certain experience, a certain accent, a certain origin, a certain religion. So we are not neutral. We cannot be neutral. So in a sense, we have to be aware that patients are not neutral either. They come with their own mishigas, their own conflicts. So neutrality has to be understood as a mechanism whereby we can start undoing some of the, the social construction that exists to understand how it feels like to be a woman, how it feels like to be coming from Alabama. What does it feel like to be black? What does it feel like to be Jewish? What does it feel like? So neutrality doesn't mean that we don't talk about these things. It means that we talk about them, but openly. So it becomes a way of being in the room and understanding the process as being open-ended. Everything can be and should be explored, minimizing the assumptions. No, you're right, because people will say, I am neutral. I laugh at them. I say, how can you be neutral? By definition, nobody can be neutral. We come with a heavy luggage and the patient comes with a heavy luggage. Yeah. Catherine, in France, psychoanalysts still feel that they can have or be a political voice. Yeah. Is it something that you saw happening in the U.S.? Well, I'm not sure whether they are, the two societies are comparable, to be frank. France is a highly intellectual place. The psychoanalysts see themselves as philosophers. They belong to the highest ranking societies. So, yes, they have an influence which is political because of their views as intellectual who can understand the functioning of society better than anybody else. Whether it's true or not, I'm not sure. In this country, there are one group compared to 50 other groups that are trying to make an impact on society. And psychoanalysis is not given any special, I think, consideration as being able to provide solutions or to provide ways of coping with social problems. I don't think so. I would like to add that I see some institutes, psychoanalysts, having a voice in the political realm. And when I say political realm, I'm talking about identity. I'm talking about class. I'm talking about race, gender, so on and so forth. And the fact that some of our institutes are now bringing the issue of race to the forefront means that there's a political position that is being expressed by doing so. So if I am saying we have to talk about race, that is a political position. For example, in the institute I belong to, there are some deep conversations about the ways that white supremacy is in place in the training, in the way we do, quote-unquote, business as an institute, in the ways we invite others to come in and train as a psychoanalyst. So that is a political position that has been expressed. We are going to talk about this. Does that lead to transformation? That's something to be seen. I see what you're saying. I don't think that's what I had in mind. What I had in mind is the fact that in France, when you, that's what Catherine was referring to, you have public debates 
And you actually have psychoanalysts who publicly are engaged in the debate. Mm -hmm. It's as if today you would see, I don't know, Otto Kernberg going on Fox News and telling people, well, you know what, as a psychoanalyst, I believe that this law should be considered this or that. And then you would have a, another psychoanalyst going on uh, CNBC or whatever and positions themselves as psychoanalysts, giving an opinion through psychoanalysis. That, that I don't see. That's almost an impossible situation in the United States, not because some psychoanalysts don't want, but because psychoanalysis as a field has been devaluated in the media. So what I'm saying is that the fact that we don't hear those voices in media, which is what the example that you're giving, does not mean that people are not willing to engage. Is that the media is not willing to engage, which is completely different. I was part of a group that was trying to find a newspaper that would print what we were saying. No one was interested, and they didn't allow that because we are psychoanalysts. So there is a, in the United States, or at least the way I, I see things, there is a devaluation of the field by the powers that be, including the media. Catherine, from your experience of sociology, how do you understand the fragmentation of psychoanalysis? From an external point of view, it seems like many different fields are more able to work together than psychoanalysis that seems to maintain very rigid differences between different schools. I think that psychoanalysis as a discipline has never been totally legitimate because it has never been in the U.S. part of the university. So they create their own little institute, which becomes sect-like. They have their own rules, they teach their own courses, they have their own curriculum. Mm -hmm. They don't belong to the larger intellectual discourse that happens in research institutes or universities. So they have to distinguish themselves from each other. So the more they create different positions, the more they hope that they will be noticed. So there is a competition for being noticed by being different and by being, in a sense, able to provide services because they have been isolated and, uh, in a sense, marginalized in the the U.S. And I don't think it's going to change quickly. Social psychology is very different. Social psychology is part of the university. Psychology is part of the university, but psychoanalysis is not. Mm -hmm. Your idea, if I understand correctly, is that if there was a sense of recognition, it would help those different schools hold together more uh, in a better way? I would think so, yeah. Catherine, if you were to, at this moment in time, start again, what do you envision would be the pathway? Well, I would have a real problem in some ways. How so? Because I am not sure that there is any one institute that comes out as being exceptional in terms of providing the range of courses I would want, the range of experience I would want, a place where you could do research as well as you know consulting, a place where the clinical aspect of the research is taken seriously. So a place where, you know, you would be able to mix sociology and psychoanalysis in a better way. I don't know if there is any place where this could happen. So I would want to be a psychoanalyst again, because I think it's a wonderful profession. I think it has given me a lot. I mean, what I've gotten from my patient and my supervisor is enormous. So in a sense, it has been very rewarding to me. And I want to make sure that I'm giving back enough to society and to my institute, even though my institute, I have not given back that much, simply because I've not been very active. But uh, that's my stick. 
So on the whole, I would become a psychoanalyst again. I would perhaps choose different supervisors and I may possibly choose different analysts because I think that the people that I worked with were too traditional. I would want someone that is a little more open-minded. When I chose my uh, supervisors or when I chose my analysts, I chose them without knowing enough as to what would work and what would not work. So I took a risk and I had three of them. The first one, it didn't work at all. There was a miscommunication. There was a sense of rigidity. I didn't feel comfortable. So I dropped the first one. The second one was very traditional theoretically, which was good because it gave me a kind of a sense as to what is the orthodox way of looking at psychoanalysis, but it was not enough. So I moved to a one that was more relational and that was more open and that made the difference. So I think that people should be analyzed with more than one analyst and the supervisors, they should also have several of them. And the state should provide some, like in Canada, some ways of getting analyzed without having to pay a fortune. Yeah, that would help. It's one of the major costs. Well, a drop in the military budget, probably. That's right. That's true as well. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. We are being political. Yeah. Uh. You see? Catherine, <laughs> <laughs> uh. is there something you would like to add to conclude? or? I want to thank you. I think that uh, you did a good job and I think what you're doing is an important addition so that people hear different voices. People understand that, you know, they have the space to think and to interact. So I think that what you're doing is valuable. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. People will be happy to hear about m what my two supervisors think <laughs> about psychosis. <laughs> This is it. Indeed, we presented to our audience two podcasts with an interview of Catherine Silver, a senior member of MPAP. We touched a lot of interesting questions. I think this interview reminded me of how important it is for us psychoanalysts to keep in mind or be alert, sensitive to some sociological concepts and also how those two things, sociology and psychoanalysis, can complement each other. Catherine reminded us that our patients come to us not in the vacuum, but in the matrix of our social world. So that the presence of a patient in our psychoanalytic rooms does not cut the ties to the social. Even for those analysts who are exploring the intrapsychic conflicts and inner world of a patient, to keep in mind the connections to the social world might be helpful in understanding and allowing the patient to grow in the world. And in addition to what you're saying, Edgar, I would also say that she reminded me the shortcomings of both psychoanalysis and sociology mm -hmm. and how they can help each other. If you only read someone through a sociological lens, there are things you will not understand. And if you only read someone through a psychoanalytic lens, same, there are things you will not understand. Mm -hmm. 
you really need both. Mm-hmm. Which I think means that reality is more complex and requires more than one lens. Yeah. Thank you for listening to us and for your comments, questions. Uh, we appreciate when they come our way. You can reach us through email or the forum as usual. Yeah, as usual. <laughs> yeah. See you next month. Until, Until then. then. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.